0: kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply support for today's episode of smart people podcast comes from shutterstock you might know of shutterstock as home to royalty-free photos but they offer much more kickstart your next interactive project with video clips or music tracks from their collection all of your creative needs serve to you in one place Take advantage today of a 20% discount Shutterstock is offering for a limited time at Shutterstock.com slash SPP. Again, for 20% off, go to Shutterstock.com slash SPP. And now on to the show
2: Hello, and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Wherever you are out there, happy 4th of July week. I don't know, if if you're in America, great. You're probably out there traveling and maybe going to see some fireworks, but in the rest of the world, I don't think you care about 4th of July. I don't know, somebody email me. Tell me if I'm wrong. This week on the show, we have a great one. Uh, I'm not gonna say it's the most cheery or rosy of episodes, but absolutely eye-opening and educational, and we do have a true expert to clue us in. This week on the show, we're talking with R.P. Eddy, and we are discussing his new book Warnings, Finding Cassandras to Stop Catastrophes. So you might not know what a Cassandra is. I gotta admit, I didn't. And R.P. is going to give us a great definition. In short, in Greek mythology, Cassandra foresaw calamities, but was cursed by the gods to be ignored. The problem is, as RP points out, there are modern-day Cassandras that have clearly predicted disasters such as Katrina, Fukushima, the Great Recession, the rise of ISIS, and others. But like Cassandra, these folks were ignored. And in that same vein, and perhaps more importantly, there are those out there right now warning of impending disasters that we are simply ignoring. But of course, how do you know what's a real disaster and who's just shouting that the sky is falling? And so that's one of the things we're going to talk to RP about. So who is RP? Well, he's got an impressive resume, I have to admit. So RP is currently the CEO of Ergo, a strategy and geopolitical intelligence firm headquartered in New York. He's also the CEO of Four Rivers, an investment firm focusing on Asia. And essentially, R.P. has been seeking out calamities and trying to come up with ways to fix them his whole adult life. He began his career as a director at the White House National Security Council. R.P. ran the White House presidential review process, which studied and responded to U.S. vulnerability, to disease proliferation, and bioterrorism. Later, he served in a variety of advisory positions to top American government officials, and as a senior U.S. diplomat. So clearly, R.P. knows his stuff, and he's gonna give it to us in this episode. Another thing that's really interesting about this one, in my opinion, is how R.P. got started in this industry, and in the same vein, how he's built such a unique and impressive resume. Because as I find out in many of my episodes, it's not superhuman people. It's really that old saying, right? Determination, hard work, and a little bit of luck. So we have that conversation at the beginning, and I really enjoyed it. So I'm going to turn it over to RP as he tells us why the world is collapsing. Okay, maybe not quite collapsing, but I hope it opens your eyes, you learn a little something, and enjoy it in the process. Have a great week, be safe, and of course, don't stop learning. Here it is, our episode with RP Eddie as we discuss his book, Warnings. Finding Cassandras to Stop Catastrophes. Enjoy. All right, RP. Well, first, thanks so much for taking time to be on Smart People Podcast.
1: Hey, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for taking the time on your side.
2: Absolutely. So, you know, we're going to talk, we're going to get into the book. Uh, I'm actually really fascinated by this idea of the catastrophes that we face or might avert. So it's really... You know, a pleasure to have you on. But as I mentioned before hitting record, I tried to read up on you. You have a really interesting background and I just couldn't follow. There's so many titles and things in there. So, <laughs> well, you know, what did you used to do? Let's start there.
1: Uh, okay. Well, so um, I went to college and I started studying neuroscience and started doing some grad work in neuroscience. And then I was really, really lucky to get a fellowship from the US government. Uh, and next thing I know, you know, I'm playing a sport I never playing a sport I never played before. You know, working in government, and I got invited to play with Michael Jordan, effectively, right? So I'm I'm now in the government, and I get to work at the National Security Council, which at the time is the currently always is sort of the equivalent of the Bulls. And I get to play with Richard Clark, who's the equivalent of Michael Jordan, a guy who's one of the greatest bureaucrats and leaders we ever had in the government. And for whatever reason, as a silly young boy, you know, just a kid, I got the chance to work for this guy, and. Um, So I started off at the National Security Council. That, very briefly, is the body in the White House that's supposed to help the president make foreign policy decisions and make sure that his foreign policy and national security directives are carried out across the whole government, across the DOD and the FBI and the CIA and the health agencies and all that. So uh, at the time I was there, there was about 50 to 60 of us, and our job was to listen to the president and get those messages out to the government and vice versa, have the government talk to us and have the president make decisions. So it was a Great, fun, amazing place to be. Uh, then I became a diplomat, and I went to the State Department, and I got to work with a guy, another great man named Princeton Lyman, who was our most senior diplomat at the time. And he and I basically went around the world and negotiated different treaties. So we tried to create peace in Angola, which was amazing with uh, the genocides and that horrible country, and try to stop that war. And wow. we got to negotiate the International Criminal Court and the landmine ban and all sorts of UN issues. Uh, Then I went to the Department of Energy, where I helped oversee the nuclear weapons complex, uh, security and intelligence and counterintelligence. And basically, while I was there, we um, spotted and tried to unravel a Chinese spy ring. It was a humongous mess and a huge issue. And I was right in the middle of that and trying to make make something good out of a horrible situation or at least fix a real disaster. That was Stunning Uh, then I got to work with a, a great guy another great and that by the way at energy I worked with Bill Richardson. He was secretary of energy So throughout my career, I've got to work with these great people who mentored me and gave me opportunities Then I got to work at the US mission to the UN for a guy named Richard Holbrook Who had previously created the peace in the Balkans called the Dayton Accords? He was now our ambassador to the United Nations, which is a cabinet level position and um he's probably our most famous diplomat in recent era extraordinary powerful man and and I got to work with him as we tried to craft and fix the US role at the UN but maybe more interestingly we started to work on the HIV AIDS pandemic around the world and uh Dick Holbrook cared a lot about cared a lot about that and and we got to fight that uh diplomatically and, and everywhere we could and that was an amazing opportunity I left the U.S. government at the end of my time with the U.S. mission to the U.N., and I joined the United Nations. So I handed in my black U.S. diplomatic passport, and I picked up a blue U.N. passport, became a U.N. diplomat, and I worked for Kofi Annan, who was the Secretary General, continued to work on HIV-AIDS, started working on terrorism, U.S. relationship issues, and then guess what happened in the middle of my time there? Well, 9-11. 2001, 9-11 happened, and throughout my us government career i had always sort of had this focus on bin laden and on terrorism and that's what dick and i worked on a lot at the nsc and you know continue to be very relevant throughout the rest of my job and um all of a sudden 9 11 happened and that changed my life like it changed many others um from there i you know off we go so i spent a little bit of time working on that issue again for the u.s government um and then i went into the private sector and created eventually an intelligence firm. So my, the firm I founded with my partners is called Ergo, E R G O, and it is a global intelligence and analysis firm. Um, at this point, it's perhaps one of the largest in the world. Uh, we have we've worked with thirty five thousand experts around the world. We have one hundred and eighty teams around the world. We've worked in one hundred twenty countries. And our job is to help our clients. Our clients are governments and organizations and nonprofits and investors and big, big brands you've heard of. It's to help them make sense of a pretty complicated world and understand people and policies and governments and we do scenario mapping and we do diligence and intelligence. So that's what we do now. And then, you know, going back to Richard Clark, my first boss and and a guy I've worked with sort of every month of my life since 1994 in private and public sector, we decided to write this book. And so that's that's what got my uh, your my ability to talk to you, I think, is this book we're publishing with HarperCollins.
2: Well, thank you so much for that. I, I That was a fantastic bio, and it leads me to a number of questions. So if you don't mind, what I want to do is kind of start towards the beginning of what you mentioned, ask a few questions along the way, and then obviously we'll get into the book and the things we ask along the way will be pertinent. Does that sound good? Yeah, let's do it. So one thing I'm really interested in, I saw this in your bio, is, you know, you were studying neuroscience. And if you go all the way back to that, I'm wondering, you know, why neuroscience? What interested you in that? But kind of even more so after that, if you could say to, to folks that are in school or maybe they're in a job and they're trying to map out their future, what advice would you give? Given that, I feel like you... Probably went on a career trajectory you had no idea or intention of doing.
1: You got it. <laughs> so, so let's just make sure we're very clear about what a knucklehead I've been in my life first. All right. So, why did I pick neuroscience? I was at college and there were these two lovely women, beautiful girls in my uh, kind of my freshman dorm. And one of them uh, was going to be pre med. And I said, Pre med, pre med. I mean, I didn't know anything. And I said, What's pre-med? Why do you want to be a doctor? And she said, doctors make 85000 dollars a year or whatever the number was. And I just like I never heard such a big number. <laughs> so I was, My God, I gotta be a doctor. <laughs> so initially it was just, you know, let's make let's make money. Um and the second reason was these two girls were so pretty that I wanted to spend as much time with them as I could. So, you know, what is what what are the pre-med requirements? What do they look like? So then I went into the book. Uh, the Brown University kind of curriculum book, and I, and I looked at what did it take to be pre-med and then what majors cover those, those different topics, and I realized neuroscience seemed really fascinating to me, and uh, it covered the pre-med requirements, and it seemed like a lot of fun in the process. And, and very frankly, I had gone to Brown partly because I hated math in high school. And then when I got to Brown, I realized, look, if you're going to live your life being afraid of anything, uh, you're going to have a pretty stilted life, pretty shrunken. So why don't you, instead of being afraid of math and science, why don't you take it head on and go find a really hardcore science major at the same time? So those two things motivated me to take neuroscience and off we go. And um, it was great. I absolutely loved it. And and if anyone cares about neuroscience, go read some books by Oliver Sacks. He just passed away recently, but he's one of the great neuroscientists of our era and um, if you read a couple of Oliver Sacks books, like The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, you'll want to be a neuroscientist too. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of an owner's manual for you in your head and your brain and how do you work. So that was that. And then, yes, did I have my life mapped out? Absolutely not. So remember, this is a knucklehead who picks uh, the, one of the hardest degrees at Brown because of pretty girls. So I didn't make much better decisions going forward. But what I did realize about a couple years into this just extraordinary luck I had, I had a really great job. Uh, I, I, had, I was now at the State Department. I'm still a young man. And it kind of struck me like, whoa, you have been so blessed by the opportunities you have. You better get a hold of what's going on with this life and figure out how you're going to maximize it and do do the most for the world. I, I'd always been interested in service and I wanted to serve and, and I wanted to make the world a better place. And that had been something that had been pounded into me and was very organic to who I was. So I'm at the State Department. I have this extraordinarily lucky job. I'm much, much too young for the job. And I um, came upon um, the Franklin Planner. Now, if you remember that, it was one of the early kind of self-help books of the 90s. And the Franklin Planner, I think it was the Franklin Planner, was this idea of mapping out your life, a pyramid of your life. And so I just, I got two of my best friends, Adam Dixon and Todd Asmuth, one had gone to Yale and one had gone to Dartmouth. And we did a bunch of phone calls together, and we did the pyramid of our life. Where are we today in the bottom of the pyramid, and where do we want to end at the top of the pyramid? When are we going to die? What do we want our obituaries to say? And what's going to happen in between those things? And we began mapping it out and thinking about the skills we needed to ascend to the next levels we wanted to get. And um, I'm happy to say that in, what, 1996 or 7, whatever it was that I did that with Adam and Todd, the plan I mapped out then really became very close to the plan that I've been living to today, 2017. And what I realized in doing that pyramid and putting time into understanding where I wanted to go and how I wanted to get there was that I need to accrue certain skills along the way. And that pyramid helped me figure it out. So, you know, for example, I knew I wanted to eventually enter the private sector and I knew I eventually wanted to run my own business with partners. But between, you know, where I was in 97 and where I am in 2017, there are a lot of skills I needed to build. I need to, you know, run my own profit and loss of a business somewhere. I need to understand how businesses work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So mapping those things out were important. I knew I wanted to have kids and I knew that I'd need to find a wife to do that. And I knew what kind of wife I you know, was hoping I'd be blessed to find. And, you know, there have certainly been massive twists and turns. And, you know, I'm I'm very happy to say most of them have been extremely positive. Uh, but but that general concept of where I wanted to go, uh, I built with Todd and Adam in, 2000, in 1997 and I've been on pretty much on the same track we mapped out then.
2: Wow, that's really impressive. And by the way, we didn't plan this, but uh, and I didn't mention this to you, but I am a consultant for Franklin Covey, so I do (laughs) I go teach some of those things. It's really funny when you said that I was like, oh, the Franklin planner. But so would you you know? Do you think that essentially creating that uh, not necessarily detailed vision and step by step. But more of a here's an idea, kind of that North Star of where I want to go and then letting that guide your decisions throughout was the way it happened.
1: Oh, you know, we we got into pretty good detail. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, the, you have to begin with the end in mind. right? Mm-hmm. I think that might be even a Covey quote. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But begin with the end in mind. And, um, and and that's what we did. And And I knew ultimately I wanted to make a real positive impact on the world. I knew I wanted to leave a legacy of service. I wanted to make the world a better place. And to be in a position where I could do that, I knew I needed a whole series of skills and exposures to get there. So how would I build them? How would I make myself someone capable of making the world better? And, and what kind of opportunities would I need to get there? And, that, that's, and, and what I believed early on, and I still believe, is it's really important to have a mixture of public service exposure. How does government work? How do multilateral organizations like the UN work? and a lot of private sector exposure. How does capital work? How do capital flows happen? How's money made? How do you actually manage businesses efficiently when you don't have kind of the big safety net of government, when you have to work on profit and loss? And, and I knew I wanted to merge those two things together. And like, look, I, I, if it sounds at all like I got it figured out at this point, I do not. Don't forget, we started this off by saying what a knucklehead I was. Mm-hmm. I still am. And I I, 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 surprise myself every day by the stupid mistakes I make, but just if I can have that North star of where we want to go, it certainly makes things easier.
2: Yeah, no. And that makes sense. I mean, and, and it also makes us feel human, at least makes me feel human or anybody, right? Like you have some good luck, but also some obviously due diligence and foresight. One thing I'm wondering is, would you, what are a few skills that you think you have That have allowed you to be successful because as much of a knucklehead you might want to be and whatever reason you got into Brown saying you're a knucklehead, even, you know, great school. But um, once you got into the professional world, it's clear you excelled all the way to, you know, what you do today and having founded Ergo, which is highly respected. uh, What are the the few kind of character traits or skills you think that got you there?
1: Well, uh, if you were to ask my partners at Ergo, uh, they would just start laughing. But (laughs) I think that's the answer. I have been very lucky to pick great people to be around um, and and, and great teams and get to work with, you know, Matthew Moneyhunt, Evan Pressman, Todd Eglin, Kate Crumrine, uh, Ned Peterson. The folks at Ergo, Katie Banks, uh, the folks at Ergo that I get to work with are just the best and they're 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 smart and they're curious and they're great people. And, um, you know, we have a hiring program at Ergo, we hope that brings those people forward, but those initial partners, they were, they, I was just, I think I was very blessed to find them and work with them. So, so one is great teams, right? I mean, actually Dick told me, my co-author, you know, told me back in 94, 95, look, the way to manage is sort of the Winston Churchill method of pick great teams, Give them enough guidance; they know what they're going to do, and then be smart enough to leave them alone to do it. You know, so I have that as my sort of chapeau to to management. But um, you you don't want to exaggerate that either. You need to really get into the nitty gritty at certain times as well. So I'd say I've been surrounded by great teams. Um, I'd say that uh, I've been blessed to be curious uh, and and to ask you know to really want to dig into things to some extent. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't think it's about me. I think it's about the great people I've been able to find and, um, the, the clients who wanted to give us a shot and the mentors who have wanted to work with us and the advisory board we have at Ergo to lead us along, you know, um, I think that would be it.
2: Okay. I'll ta- I'll allow that humble answer. Um, so now I want to talk about kind if, of, if you if you knew me better, you'd realize it's not humble. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I want to ask you about kind of the transition that seemed to happen due to nine eleven, and see if it's a fair assumption. Would you say that kind of prior to nine eleven and the years leading up, you were very focused on that? More of the um, the catastrophes that are diseases, i.e., AIDS, HIV. And then, after nine eleven, did you kind of become a specialist in terrorism?
1: I'd say no. I think it's actually kind of the opposite. Um, my first jobs working at the NSC were around terrorism. So Dick Clark in ninety two three four started getting a heads up about a guy named Osama bin Laden. and he became laser focused on him and and I, you know, I carried Dick's bags. I worked for Dick at the time. And he created the Bin Laden Task Force, and and his job and his mission and his message at the time, and as I said, I got to sit in the back and watch and help where I could, was to go get this guy. And of course, Dick was very prescient. You know, he was seven years ahead of 9-11, he was thinking about this guy. So no, I was doing, my initial career was really around counterterrorism. I focused particularly on the chem bio aspects of it, um, the Amshon Rico terrorist attack with Sarin in Japan, preparing the Atlanta Olympics for chem-bio nuclear attack and a variety of things like that. Then, you know, the government at the time, pre-9-11, you had offices called Global Issues or Multilateral Affairs, and these were offices that didn't confine themselves to one region. So you weren't the European desk, you weren't the Middle East desk or office, you were the Global Issues office, things that were transnational. and And that meant then terrorism was lumped in with disease was lumped in with sanctions was lumped in with peacekeeping all these transnational issues transnational issues were were piled into one office so if you did disease you probably sat next to the guy who did terrorism sat next to the guy who did other transnational things so my chem bio terrorism work became more relevant as aids became a bigger issue in fact I created the presidential policy i I was sort of the chairman of the subcommittee to create the presidential policy in 94 6 around disease and that i'm sorry around chemical and biological terrorism and that led into a conversation around disease around hiv so hiv became prominent to me because of my background on terrorism and then then yes when i went to work for holbrook in 98 he really cared about hiv uh, and and we did a lot of effort on that, and we 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 built, negotiated the first UN Security Council resolution on HIV at the Millennium uh, Change for the UN. And you know Holbrook was a real powerful figure in the world, and he decided to put that energy behind getting the world to understand how horrible HIV was. And and he probably should have gotten a Nobel Peace Prize for what he did on that. Kofi Annan ended up getting the Nobel Peace Prize for that work when I was working for him.
0: And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. The news can be pretty overwhelming these days, and it's hard to know when to act. But Kiva proves that when each of us takes small actions, our collective efforts can transform the world for millions of people. Kiva.org is the world's largest crowdfunding platform for social good. With Kiva, you can back the dreams of refugees, small business owners, students, and those needing a chance, at home in the U.S. and abroad. The best part is that it's a loan, not a donation. So as you get repaid, you can continue to recycle your money to fund more individuals. You may have heard the phrase, if you teach a man to fish, you can feed him for a lifetime. Kiva's borrowers already know how to fish. They just need a little money to buy a net. And in small $25 increments, Kiva's growing global community of 1.6 million lenders have crowdfunded $1 billion dollars with a 97% repayment rate. That's proof of a compelling mission and a sustainable model. Join in the movement today at kiva.org slash SPP. And if you make your first loan during July or August, Kiva will give you a $25 credit to back a second dream. That's kiva.org SPP to get
2: started. And now back to the episode. Mm. Wow. Okay, that's that. I I was unaware of that, but that makes sense. The last thing, kind of, and then we'll start to transition more into the book. But the pub, the the transformation you made from kind of public sector to private sector, a very common one. Oftentimes, I think the uh, the timing, as well as obviously the financial rewards of doing so, are great. And I'm just wondering, kind of, what made you do that? What uh, what was it like? And kind of, how do you feel, what are the biggest differences in your mind uh, between the public versus private sector?
1: Well, I knew, um, you know, when I went through that process with Todd and Adam, I mentioned in 97, 98, the Franklin Covey kind of outline of your life, mm-hmm. I knew that if I wanted to be a, you know, someone who made a real impact on the world in the long term, a positive impact uh, as a servant leader, that I had to get out of government soon enough and learn the powers of the private sector. I didn't know really what they were, but I knew that they mattered. So I knew I'd have to make that transition, build businesses, make some money with the goal at that time of going back into government later and, and, and making a real impact. And so I knew I had to do that. And, and frankly, part of how I knew it, this is a fun story. There's a woman named um, Susan Rice. She was our national security advisor under Obama. Mm-hmm. And Susan was in our office at the NSC with Dick Clark. And um, Susan had worked at McKinsey. I had worked nowhere, right? So, you know, Susan is this very brilliant, very strong woman and had worked at McKinsey. And we were in a meeting one day, and I don't know what we were talking about, but she got up on the whiteboard and she drew a two-by-two, you know, a a two-by-two graph of decision-making. I don't know if if your readers are probably aware of what that looks like. And we had some serious folks in the room. We had some generals and other people, and this is 1994 five. 5 She writes a two-by-two on the graph, on, on the whiteboard. And, um, The whole room was just sort of puzzled by this dark magic. What did she just put up there? This black art. You know, this is the most amazing framework any of us had seen. Now, if you understand the private sector today or even then, a two by two is a pretty obvious framework for decision making. But when I saw Susan Rice put that thing up on the whiteboard, I said, oh, my God, I've got to learn more about these frameworks and these skills. She had worked at McKinsey, so I wanted to work at a management consulting firm and and learn that stuff. And I was lucky enough to go work for Mark. Fuller at the Monitor Group, and which is a consulting firm, and build those skills as I went forward. So um, I knew I needed the skills. And then um, the timing of it, I think I was just dumb luck. I think it's very hard for people to transition out of government as they get older. I think there's a sweet spot where you, if you have enough interest in government exposure, yet you're still young enough and malleable enough that private sector companies will take you on and realize you can be a utility infielder until you find your position. That was the sweet spot I happened to find myself in. So. I got to go work, as I said, for Mark Fuller at Monitor, and they were, they were interested in my government background, but they also knew I was young enough that I kind of got my sort of MBA on a fly training at Monitor. I learned frameworks. I was doing, you know, real grunt work on different projects, but it was about things I knew. I was doing work for pharmaceutical companies on HIV strategy. I was doing work for world leaders on how to make an impact um, using multilateral organizations. So I had the experience i could bring in and add to the private sector initiative but i also learned a lot from the private sector that was valuable later about frameworks and discipline etc so it's hard to make the transition and i would encourage people if they know they don't want to stay in government do it sooner rather than later because as you get a little older and you're trying to make the transition people stereotype you as already being too set in your ways and not malleable enough and it's there's a massive difference between the two to the two worlds
2: i can imagine that's what i was wondering how you kind of saw it. But all right, so now let's talk about, which brings us to the book, and the book is called Warnings, Finding Cassandras to Stop Catastrophes. Really this idea of uh, everything about kind of catastrophes, right? And what you do at Ergo, partially, which is uh, warning people or at least predicting what might happen. Um, What kind of was the impetus to write this book?
1: So again, Richard Clark, my co-author, is you know world famous for being a person who foresaw bin Laden's attack on America. He foresaw 9-11 in pretty clear detail. He wrote a memo to the Bush administration when he worked there as head of counterterrorism, a very frustrated memo a week or two before 9-11. This is nine months into the Bush presidency. He wrote a memo that said, listen, effectively, it said, I've been trying to get your attention. I've been trying to get you to put in a place a very aggressive counter-Al Qaeda, counter-bin Laden plan. You haven't done it. I don't know what more I can say. What's it going to take, the lives, the bodies of thousands of dead Americans laying in the streets before you take this seriously? So that was a very famous memo in American history written a week or two before 9-11, ignored, right? So there's Dick Clark, a guy who's warning, 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 and gets ignored. Well, that's So Dick and I are very close, and he's been a huge friend to me my whole life and uh, my my professional life, and and, uh, we wanted to write a book together. So this idea of a Cassandra became pretty organic because Dick really was a Cassandra uh, and I got to work with him in that period. So I saw it and, and it got to be part of that frustration. Um, and so the idea of, are there other Cassandras out there? Are there a variety of people who have foretold disasters and been ignored became something we thought a lot about. And I remember us sitting one day in the summer, a couple summers ago, probably having some beer or whatever it was in the afternoon thinking about this idea. And we said, look, you know what? There's a book here. I think there's going to at least be seven or eight stories of Cassandra's that we can tell. But neither of us wanted just to write a history book. You know, uh, We didn't want to write about seven times the world failed to listen to somebody and disaster happened. So the real question was, okay, we'll tell those stories. We'll study those people. Are we going to learn anything about it other than the sad stories? And we didn't really know if we were gonna find similarities amongst those seven Cassandras. So again, seven people who foretold disaster, warned and warned and warned, stomped the table, said listen, Fukushima's gonna hit the nuclear reactor, listen, Bernie Madoff's a fraud, listen, Saddam Hussein's gonna invade Iraq, you know, listen, there's a group coming out of Syria called ISIS, you need to be prepared for it, listen, You know, Citigroup's going to fail. 2008's going to become a huge collapse. There were people warning of these things. We knew we could tell the story, but we didn't know if we'd learn lessons. So we said, look, let's just dive in and see. So we did. And we wrote the seven profiles. And boy, oh boy, did we find similarities and commonalities. And that is, I think, the value of the book.
2: First, let's just make sure for those that don't know what a Cassandra is. Could you define that for us?
1: Cassandra is a figure from Greek mythology. One of the Greek gods came down and gave her the the benefit of seeing the future. You know, that's terrific, right? But then he gave her the curse that no one would believe her when she told of disasters. So Cassandra is a woman. She lives in Troy. And she sees... Very clearly the sacking of Troy. Remember the Trojan horse? Right? Oh, yeah. She sees the Trojan horse coming. She knows her beloved city is going to be burned to the ground. She's screaming and yelling and warning people, and they ignore her. And, of course, she's right. Troy gets burned to the ground, and Cassandra dies with all of her fellow citizens. Cassandra. That's that's who she was. And that's who we're talking about, people who foretell disaster, have very specific explanations of what's gonna happen, and they warn and warn and warn, and they are ignored, and the disaster happens. That's what we call a Cassandra. So what's important is, and people listening might go, well, yeah, but people warn of disasters all the time, and they're wrong. Yes, there's the chicken littles out there who say the sky is gonna fall, and it never does. So what we wanna figure out, and what I think this book does, is tell the difference between a chicken little and a Cassandra, how can you tell the difference?
2: Well, you took the words out of my mouth because here's the thing. I would love to know all the Cassandras and primarily I'm, I'm interested in this this uh, Bernie Madoff one, right? Because yeah, I worked in uh, commercial real estate for quite some time and uh, right around, I mean, literally from 2005, to 2009. So saw the crash, saw the rise, all that. And um, realized if if I would have been one of those smartest guys in the room, like if I would have, I mean, I was making these these loans happen. And if I, you know, seeing what uh, collateralized debt was and all these things, I could have, I could have retired. I could be worth a billion dollars. So yeah. aside from, we'll get to the, the, everyone on that listens knows where my true motivations are in helping people, but from a purely financial perspective, how do we find the Cassandras who are right? Yeah. So look,
1: the, uh, the, the 08 collapse is a fascinating story. Uh, when you look at the book, or look anyone who knows about financial markets since 08 knows the name Meredith Whitney, right? And uh, Meredith was the, the analyst at Oppenheimer, whose job it was to study big banks and issue buy-sell ratings. She was an analyst, senior analyst. And she said, hey, the largest company in the world, Citigroup, is going to fail. Then she issued a sell rating on Citigroup. It was shocking, right? No one believed it. No one understood. But she had done the hard work. She had done the data-driven analysis. She came forward and said it was going to happen, and the stock market lost 400 million bucks in a day. Excuse me, 400 billion dollars in a day. Like what this woman did was profound. So your question, Chris, is all right. Great. Look, there's there's Noriel Rabini out there too, right? And as they say, Noriel Rabini has called caused eight of the last two recessions. There's lots of people who get it wrong. So how do I know who's going to get it right? So we have in this book, after studying these seven or eight Cassandras who were right, we look for commonalities amongst them. How can Chris, you and I and others and governments and leaders, how can we tell the next time someone comes in screaming and yelling about a disaster if they're right or not? Well, we think we came up with an idea, the Cassandra coefficient. And, And this is driven from the analysis we did of these Cassandras. It's got four categories. There's lessons about the warning that they're giving us. There's lessons about the decision makers, the person who's supposed to be listening. There's lessons about the Cassandra herself, and there's lessons about the critics. And as we went through these different examples, we found 24 indicators across those four categories that you know what, you should ask the next question. You should be more curious, right? Because our human bias is to not be very curious move on with our day, make a quick decision, and get that Warner out of the office. That's, that's a very human bias. And what we talk about is 24 things to look for. And if you find these, more and more and more of them, you better ask more questions. Now, we're not saying that if you find these 24 answers to be yes, or if you find any of them, that it means that the Warner's right. All we're saying is look more closely. So we have 24 of those things. And um, as I said, they're across four categories. Let's talk a little bit about a Cassandra themselves and how to know when they might be right so if you look at Meredith Whitney for 08 Meredith didn't announce the world hey I kind of have a feeling that Citigroup can't pay their dividend I kind of have a feeling that Citigroup's books are wrong I kind of intuit that this company is not going to do great she came out with a detailed spreadsheet of every part of the profit and loss of that massive company and said the numbers don't lie look at the numbers look at your own data Here's something amazing, Chris. When we wrote this book, of the seven Cassandras we profiled, every single one of them said the same sentence at some point. Every single one of them said to the people not listening to them, the same sentence. Why are you ignoring your own data? Data Data-driven. These guys Mm -hmm. are data-driven. Meredith was data-driven. The guy who busted, well, didn't bust. The guy who saw Madoff as a fraud was data-driven. Okamura who foretold the Fukushima disaster was data-driven. So if you see a Cassandra come forward and they are a proven expert in their space and they are data-driven, you better start listening closely. And there's a whole variety of other things that we propose as well.
2: Let's pick out another specific one really quick. Well, let me step back here. What is the worst disaster that's ever occurred uh, that you're aware of that was uh, foretold by a Cassandra
1: there's been so many. Look, we're all familiar with the rise of Nazism and Churchill warning of it for decades. We're all familiar with the Challenger explosion, those those astronauts dying, and engineers saying precisely what would happen on that on that cold January day, right? But maybe as far as as far as the risk reward ratio, the biggest one I've seen um, that we write about is the Fukushima nuclear disaster, called Fukushima Daiichi. So. In this instance, there was a Cassandra named Okamura. He is a proven technical expert. He runs a seismology center in Japan. He's an earthquake expert. And he did a lot of study, and he said over and over to the guys building this nuclear power plant on the coastline in Japan, hey, don't build the nuclear power plant on the coastline so low. Don't build it so close to sea level. You need to be up about 30 more feet to be safe. And the guy went to hearing after hearing, meeting after meeting. This little guy, this, this meek, small man kept going to these meetings saying, can I have the microphone? Can I please show you my data? Can I please tell you that a tsunami is going to come for sure? And it's going to breach your walls for sure. And it's going to drive your nuclear power plant into uh, meltdown and they didn't listen to him over and over and over. And the resp- the cost of just the nuclear disaster was somewhere in the range of $100 billion. Probably thousands of people are gonna die from the nuclear exposure that they had uh, from, from lifetime-caught uh, cancers. And this guy had a solution. He, he said, look, just build your seawall higher. Or, or put seals on your battery doors, your generator doors, in case the water does come over the seawall. And they didn't do anything he wanted. It probably we we calculated that if they had made his little fixes, uh, it maybe would have cost maximum fifty million dollars, five zero million to build a bigger seawall or put the seals on the doors, whatever it was. So it's about 2,000 times less than the actual fallout cost. So that disaster was magnificent. And by the way, I'm just talking about the nuclear payout. Thousands of people died because, and this is so sad, they knew the tsunami was coming, right? They knew the earthquake had occurred. They blew the tsunami horns. Japan has a history of tsunamis. So people know to go to these tsunami-safe zones. So children left schools, parents left work, and they went up higher- to these tsunami safe zones. Well, guess what? When they built those tsunami safe zones, they didn't listen to Okamura, and thousands of people were swept to their deaths, standing on high ground that had been labeled tsunami safe zones, and they were not. Let me add one more thing to it, which is just shocking to me. Japanese society is a well-ordered, considerate place. For thousands of years, they've been hit by tsunamis. So the ancestors of current Japanese, Sometimes thousands of years ago, certainly hundreds of years ago, built, built large stone pillars that they embedded in the coastline that said, do not build your house below this pillar. Big waves come here. And they built them all over the country, all over the coastlines. Don't build your house below this pillar because big waves will come. Do not build your house below this pillar. These stone tablets said. There are stone tablets right above the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant that say, do not build below this tablet that someone hundreds of years ago took the time and effort to build to save people in the future, and they were ignored. So that one just makes you cry. People were killed, massive nuclear disaster, the biggest nuclear disaster since Chernobyl. And you had a guy, Okamura, warning over and over and over with specific data, and he was ignored. Wow. Sad, sad story.
0: And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. If you've ever found yourself daydreaming during the workday or spending countless hours on small tasks, try NeutroBoost. NeutroBoost is a top rated supplement made from nootropics, cognitive enhancing compounds that, when stacked in the right combination, give some of Silicon Valley's best coders and business people their extra edge. They are 100% safe and, in this case, made from natural and potent cognitive enhancers that will significantly improve your focus, concentration, and memory. So for all you hustlers, strivers, and thrivers, anyone looking to get the most out of their lives, count on NutraBoost to increase your productivity and give you the competitive edge needed to conquer any challenge. That way, you can have more time in the day to enjoy the important things in life. For a limited time, NutraBoost is offering a free 30-day supply. That's a $60 value, and all you'll have to pay is less than $5 for shipping. Head to trineutroboost.com slash smart. That's T-R-Y-N-O-O-T-R-O-B-O-O-S-T dot com slash smart to claim your free trial now while supplies last and before this offer expires. That's trineutroboost.com slash smart. And one more time for you. T-R-Y-N-O-O-T-R-O-B-O-O-S-T dot com slash smart. And now back to
2: the episode. Now that is, that is just chilling. And I know how many times it's happened. One of the things I, I also am wondering, especially given your past, is I'm surprised there's actually not more catastrophic disasters. So we must do a Either we must do a fairly decent job of preventing some or we must get really lucky. What do you think it is kind of being in the war room of some of this stuff?
1: Look, we're getting better and better at predicting weather disasters. So weather disasters have been a big issue throughout the history of humanity. Uh, And we're doing a better job at foreseeing hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunamis. So that's certainly lessened the number of catastrophes that attack human beings. But Chris, I would disagree with you. I think Mm -hmm. we do a pretty crummy job of foretelling catastrophes. And I would think, given how advanced we are as a society, given what we've been able to do technologically, the fact that we still get slammed by catastrophe, every year or two, there is a major global catastrophe. And every one of those that I can think of was predicted by a Cassandra. I mean, it's shocking, right? I didn't know that when we started this book. Dick and I didn't realize the correlation but if you look at almost any catastrophe that we've had that you can think of, and I mean major global problem, there was a data-driven expert screaming and yelling, saying this is going to happen. Uh, so you know, I, I think if you just look at you know modern history, we've we've lost um, millions and millions of lives and billions and billions of dollars to catastrophes in just the last ten years, and that's that's not acceptable, um, particularly given our capacity. You think we're better than that. You'd think we could figure it out. But it turns out, here's the secret, right? It turns out, as technologically advanced as we are, we don't have a technology to help us foretell disasters generally. We do have some good technologies in weather. We do have some good technologies in other parts of science. We clearly don't have good technologies in financial markets, right? Few people saw 08 coming. No one can tell me right now how 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 close we are to a recession again. A lot of people believe we're in a We're in the end of a bull market. We're entering a bear market. But there's no technology that can give me a concise answer for that. So we keep getting slammed by these catastrophes. And the only thing that ties together the warnings, the only thing that ties them together, is that we had a person warning of every one of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So let's get better at it. Let's make sure we're down to zero catastrophes, particularly when someone is explicitly telling us it's going to happen.
2: Yeah, I mean, and when I think about it, the the weather ones – Seem extremely difficult, or a lot of natural disasters. But as you mentioned, our and you and no more. You know, our ability to diagnose these and predict them is better and should be better. The ones that I'm really surprised about, I can't believe we haven't uh, had been ha- basically had a nuclear explosion. You know, a terrorist attack in America. I can't believe that we've not had more uh, biological uh, attacks. You know, there's certain things that I'm just or, or a complete hack shutdown of our, you know, electrical grid or something. Those are the things that I feel like people must be just really doing their job behind the scenes. And I don't know if you can speak to that, um, you know, with your background and everything.
1: Sure. Look, um, I really believed after nine 11 and I stated publicly and I was wrong. So I was a chicken little, that we were going to get, New York City was going to get slammed by a, a whole litany of massive terrorist attacks in the years to come. And I gave talks on that. So I was a chicken little. I was wrong. Things weren't as bad as I said they would be. But you're exactly right, Chris. Things weren't as bad as I said they'd be because our intelligence and our response was really good. So we didn't need to be warned anymore, right? We had been warned mm. before 9 11 and ignored it and got it wrong and paid a massive cost. So the whole, so did the whole world. But after that, the warning was listened to. So we had everything from local police to the FBI and DOD and CIA all now laser-focused on terrorism, and guess what, that worked, right? So we shifted massive amounts of US government assets towards stopping terrorism, and it worked. The NYPD stopped dozens of terrorist attacks targeted towards New York uh, since 9-11. Wow! If we hadn't had you know the slap in the face of 9-11, we wouldn't have been prepared for all those things. Okay. So now you asked about chem nuclear terrorism. It falls under the same description I just gave that the government worked very, very hard and smartly and effectively and, and allied with other governments to stop chem bio terrorist attacks in the United States. Um, but I agree with you that it still stands out there as a massive risk. And in fact, if you talk to real people in the know on counterterrorism, and I do all the time, I used to be one of them, um, that's the real threat. The real threat, for example, is that ISIS, who we know has access to some chemical weapons, they've used them before. By the way, ISIS has fired chemical weapons at U.S. troops, right? So then we know they have mustard gas or chlorine. The real threat is that they get those weapons and they use them. Well, it's, it's horrible for them to use them against people in the Middle East. But as far as a sovereign risk, we don't want them to use them in the U.S. or against our European allies. That is an area of massive, intensive focus by the U.S. and allied governments, and it's because we focused on it, because we took the warning seriously, that I think we've been able to prevent it so far.
2: That's a great point.
1: You have to take the warning seriously.
2: Well, and on that, uh, what do you think the greatest threat to mankind is right now, in your opinion?
1: I I think we have a few. So there's uh, two terms I learned writing this book. Uh, that are that are a little scary one is called giga death and that's the death of millions of humans by one event and the other one is called a species level extinction event and that's where a species gets destroyed like humans so the problem is and this kept me up it's really kept me up at night sometimes is that that we are now facing a couple of threats that i think present species level risk giga death risk they are the rise of superintelligence, meaning artificial intelligence, computers, and robots that are vastly smarter than humans, that is a, that is going to happen. I mean, you, there's no scientist in the world worth his salt who's going to tell you no. We'll never have computers smarter than humans. So accept that's going to happen. Accept that we are going to have super intelligent computers, computers that program themselves, make themselves smarter, build their own code. Uh, probably in a way we can't even foretell, in fact, in a way we certainly can't foretell, we are going to have machines smarter than us. One quote I love is, will computers ever be as smart as humans? The answer is yes, but only for a short period of time, because then they're going to be much smarter than us. So that's a fact, and that's a lot to get your head around. But we are going to have computers smarter than humans, much smarter than humans. Now, it can go two ways. It can be the greatest thing ever. It can cure disease. It can cure hunger. It can cure energy problems. Uh, and it will if it's well-controlled. I mean, the power of these kind of computers is beyond anything we can imagine. The other way it can go is that they become uh, not under our control anymore. And and now, right now, the feeling a lot of people in your audience might have is this thing we call outlandishness, right? You listen to me saying, hey, someday the computers and robots could take over the world, like in the movie Terminator. And people go, ah, that's outlandish. I don't believe that stuff. I've seen it in so many movies. That's silly of you to believe it. If you're a serious thinker, you don't think about things like that. Well, guess what? You're wrong. Bill Gates, Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, some of the greatest thinkers of our era are more terrified than me about the rise of superintelligent computers. And they say, and they put a lot of money behind it, we better get this right or it's an existential risk to humans. It's a species level event. That would be one of my biggest risks right there. Because we have no idea what this thing will look like. We have no idea how to control it. And it's going to be much, much more powerful than we are. So the creation of superintelligence will be the last invention humans ever make. Our final invention will be superintelligence. Why do I say that? Because the superintelligence either will destroy us or it will invent everything else going forward. So that is a big deal. It's worth a lot of conversation. That concerns
2: me a lot. Mm. Yeah, I actually think that when you were saying, oh, there's people listening going, no, I mean— I completely agree with you. I kind of blows my mind. I was watching a TED talk on how we're already cyborgs because we use our phones everywhere. So we've already almost you could look at it as evolved past homo sapien and how it will continue to happen until, again, we're just unrecognizable or it's robots or computers. One really quick, I, quick one I wanted to ask you about was was how do you feel in all this research about climate change? Because that's the one that jumps out to me is just there's Cassandra's everywhere and people are like, yeah, yeah, we get it, but it's kind of far away, so let's not pay attention. (laughs)
1: Um, We talk in the book about something called satisficing, right? And that's where where, um, the powers that be listen to a complaint, listen to a warning, listen to a Cassandra and say, okay, I'm gonna do just enough to satisfy you, but not enough to solve the problem. And I believe if you look at climate change, we have a situation where the decision makers are doing satisficing. Satisficing is a bad thing. It's not doing enough to solve it, but it's enough to shut you up, right? So we have a variety of treaties. Everyone talks about their you know, carbon load and this and that. We are not doing enough. Here's how I feel about climate change. I think uh, we quickly get drawn into this really horrible political argument that for somehow ends up being a Republican versus Democratic discussion about the future of the world. And I don't know how it got there, and we should be embarrassed that it does. But when we get into that conversation, um, we ignore the reality that I don't care who caused it, but for sure, we have seen a massive amount of climate change. Maybe it's a natural cycle. Maybe it comes from mankind. I'm quite sure it comes from mankind, but you know, others disagree with me. Fine. Now, the guy who predicted all this stuff, his name Hansen. And he was a world-class scientist, and he's the first guy who came up with the idea about climate change. And he was a you know, semi-hard-to-listen-to guy. A lot of our Cassandras have off-putting personalities. They're not great communicators, and, and Jim Hansen was one of those guys. So he was really lucky to team up with a very charismatic guy who really listened to him, who was a senator at the time, named uh, Al Gore right? So, Al Gore and Hansen teamed up to create um, a movie and a book and a whole series of learnings called An Inconvenient Truth. By the way, An Inconvenient Truth is the greatest title for all these Cassandra warnings I could think of. Mm-hmm. It's not convenient for me as a decision maker to realize I have to now change the way America works and thinks and, and, and operates and spend all this money to figure out how to fix this problem that you just brought to me. It's an inconvenient truth. You could say that about the Fukushima issue or Madoff. All these things are inconvenient to the decision maker when they come. So Jim Hansen and and, um, and Al Gore are, are running around talking about climate change and it becomes a political issue and that's too bad. But that is a real issue. So Hansen now might be a two-time Cassandra. So Hansen was inarguably right about climate change 20 years ago. And we've now seen that. And we've seen uh, the world warm vastly more than even predicted by the models at the time and we've seen storms grow much more horrible and large than they were previously because of climate change but hansen says it's going to get worse so hansen's now predicting that we're going to have uh, massive sea level rise that we're going to we're going to have sea level rise happen much larger and faster than previously predicted and we wrote that in in 2016 2015 and spent time with him look now that we're in 2017 go look at the headlines the ice sheets are melting perhaps at the point where we can't stop them anymore that is what hansen was saying two years ago people said he was crazy so you know let, let's let's just stop the politicking around this realize it realize we have massive sea level issues and and start understanding what that means. It means entire countries like Bangladesh are going to be gone. All the cities, major cities on our coast are gonna be underwater if we don't turn into Holland. So we have a massive problem coming up here. Let's try to address it as soon as we can. We're not. We're satisfying.
2: Maybe maybe we leave it to Elon Musk and we all we're going to Mars. I don't know. RP, the last thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, I I don't want to leave it on such a uh, depressing note, right? And so, of course, we'll read your book and we'll talk more about uh, other places you write. But what can the average person do? I mean, what do we do with this information? Is there is there any hope, any recommendations on your end?
1: Thank you. So, um, yes, there are. First, you know, read the book, buy as many copies as you can, give them to all your friends um, and understand that. Sometimes when someone gives you a warning, it's worth listening. And, and our, our internal, our human bias is to try to ignore as many warnings as possible and get on with our day. But ask the next question. Be more curious. Be a more curious person. That's one thing. The second thing is, look, right now, Chris, someone listening to your podcast hopefully is thinking, whoa, 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 I have a warning. Or I know a guy or gal who has a warning, and I want to make sure that warning gets listened to. So Richard Clark. General Michael Hayden, former head of NSA and CIA, Frank Wisner, America's greatest diplomat, living diplomat, a number of of people, we've come together and we've said, let's keep the quest, the search for Cassandra's ongoing as long as we can. We've created a foundation where we're gonna give a Cassandra award every year. We're gonna give a cash prize of at least $10,000 and we're gonna put as much press around a a potential Cassandra every year as we can. So if you go to find Cassandra, Cassandra.com. If you go to findcassandra.com, you'll find a form. And you can fill that form out and we'll get it. And it, it and we're asking you to nominate a potential Cassandra. And we're going to look at that form. I want people all around the world to fill these forms out. And then the judges, I mentioned a few of them. We have some former, we have some proven Cassandras in our judging panel, Meredith Whitney. We have some great business leaders like Mark Gerson in this group of leaders. That are going to review these Cassandras and we're going to give that award every year and uh, not only give them cash but ideally give them a lot of press so the world will pay a little more attention to a person we think might be right as they foretell a disaster
2: wow all right i'm excited to see where this goes well thank you for that rp and thank you for your time again the book is warnings finding Cassandras to stop catastrophes where we will of course link to it at smartpeoplepodcast.com where else are you or are you on social? Uh, What would you like to plug here? And and how can people learn more about what you're doing?
1: So um, you can learn more about our firm at ergo.net, E-R-G-O.net. And we'd love to be helpful to anyone out there who wants to engage us. You can follow me on Twitter at rpeddy, just R-P-E-D-D-Y. Or you can read more about the book at warningsbook.com warningsbook.net. If you go to warningsbook.net, you'll see the book. You can buy it on Amazon, obviously. It's published by HarperCollins, the world's largest publisher. Um, We think it's going to have a big run, and and we hope people go out and buy it and read it and learn from it. And then we hope that people will nominate Cassandra, potential Cassandras for the Cassandra Award and that we begin to change the dialogue about disasters so we don't keep getting slapped in the face by catastrophes. Let's figure out how we can listen to the accurate warnings of catastrophe and we can mitigate or stop those catastrophes before they get us.
2: I'm all for it. I would love to stay alive. And then I know you mentioned you know, the thing about families. I have a young son. I always think about it. What's going to happen to them or their kids? So I appreciate your work. I appreciate you putting this out into the world. And hopefully Ergo is on the front lines of preventing these things from happening in the future. So again, well, RP,
1: everyone, thank you. Everyone listening can be too.
2: I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for doing what you do. And, uh, Chris, best thanks of a life. lot. All right, RP. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye-bye.
0: Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with RP Eddie. You can find RP's book, Warnings, Finding Cassandra's to Stop Catastrophes, on Amazon. And as a reminder, if you do decide to purchase RP's book or anything else through Amazon, please go through the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at Smart People Podcast slash Amazon. Any purchase you make through that link comes at no extra cost to you and gives a nice little kickback to the show. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, you could head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review over there. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you could send us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. To those listeners in the U.S., I hope you have a very happy and safe 4th of July celebration. We've got some great interviews coming up, so make sure you stay tuned and head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com, sign up for that newsletter over there, and we will see you all next episode.